Everybody, welcome to tonight's service. We're going to give you freedom. We have a lot of songs and a lot of scripture. We're going to roll from one right into the other tonight. So, I mean, our first song is a little bit peppier, but we're recognizing that um, because of this day that uh, Jesus came out of the tomb. So we're, we're going to sing out a little bit peppier. If you want to sit, you want to stand, whatever you want to do. The rest of the time, we're just going to have you stand, uh, sit the whole time and uh, and just uh, worship the God and just uh, and the God who rose Jesus from the dead. And so let's uh, let's just go to him and worship right now. Saturday was silent, surely it was through. Since when has impossible ever stopped you? Friday's disappointment is Sunday's empty tomb. Since when has impossible ever stopped you? This is the sound of dry bones rattling. This is the phrase, make a dead man walk again. Open the grave, I'm coming out. I'm gonna live, gonna live again. This is the sound of dry bones rattling. Do it now, this is 
the praise, make the dead man walk again. Open the grave, I'm coming out. I'm gonna live, gonna live again. Open the grave, I'm coming out. I'm gonna live, gonna live again. Open the grave, I'm coming out. I'm gonna live, gonna live again. This is the sound of dry bones rattling. may be seated. The first reading is from Mark 14, verses 12 through 31. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples telling them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters. The teacher asks, Where is my guest room? Where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. The disciples left, went into the city, and found things just as Jesus had told them. So they prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the twelve. While they were reclining at the table eating, he said, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They were saddened, and one by one they said to him, Surely you don't mean me. It is one of the twelve, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. While they were eating, while they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You will all fall away, Jesus told them, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter declared, even if all fall away, I will not. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, today, yes, tonight, before the rooster crows twice, you yourself will disown me three times. But Peter insisted emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the others said the same. Grand earth has great before 
second scripture is Mark 14, verses 32 to 52. They went to a place called Gethsemane, and Jesus said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, and he began to be deeply distressed and troubled. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death, he said to them. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possible, the hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Simon, he said to Peter, are you asleep? Couldn't you keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Once more he went away and prayed the same thing. When he came back, he again found them sleeping, because their eyes were heavy. They did not know what to say to him. Returning the third time, he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough! The hour has come. Look, the man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him. The men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you, teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. A young man, wearing nothing but a linen garment, was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. Trampled on the ground 
Mark 14, verses 53 through 65. They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. There he sat with the guards and warmed himself at the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so they, they could put him to death, but they did not find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days we'll build another, not made with hands. Yet even then their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. The high priest tore his clothes. Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as worthy of death. Then some began to spit at him. 
They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophecy. And the guards took him and beat him. One day when heaven was filled with his praises One day when sin was as black as could be Jesus came forth to be born of a virgin Dwelled among men, my example is he The Word became flesh and the light shined among us his glory revealed Living he loved me Dying he saved me Buried he carried My sins far away Rising he justified Freely forever One day he's coming Oh glorious day Oh glorious day Stretched out on a tree And took the nails from me Living he loved me Dying he saved me Buried he carried My sins far away Rising he justified Freely forever One day he's coming Oh glorious day under the grave of seal him no longer One day the stone rolled away from the door Then he arose over death he had conquered Now is ascended not hold him the grave could not keep him from rising again living he loved me dying he saved me buried he carried my sins far away rising he justified freely forever one day he's coming Oh, glorious day, oh, glorious day, glorious day. One day the trumpet will sound for His coming. One day the skies with His glory will shine. 
day, my beloved one brings. My Savior Jesus is mine. Living, He loved me. Dying, He saved me. Buried, He carried my sins far away. Rising, He justified. Freely forever. One day he's coming, oh glorious day, oh glorious day, glorious day, oh glorious day. next reading is Mark 14, verses 66 through 72. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You also were with that Nazarene Jesus, she said, but he denied it. I don't know or understand what you're talking about, he said, and went out into the entryway. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around, this fellow is one of them. Again, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. He began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know what this man you're talking about. Immediately the, roast, the rooster crowed the second time. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and wept. Very early in the morning, the chief priest with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priest accused him of many things. So again Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified.
last year was like many other things at this time. Isn't it amazing? We, we still are recognizing that things are very different than they were um, before this time last year, but we kind of forget last year just how locked down everything was and, uh, and where we were. So tonight I just kind of want to give you a, a brief message called, It is Finished. And we're going to talk about this. one of the last words that Jesus gave on the cross. So let me give you some context to this whole kind of thing. If, you're, if you might remember, shortly, after, uh, shortly before the cross, Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he was there with his disciples and his, uh, three of his, his big three disciples said, don't fall asleep. Don't fall asleep. He said to them, don't fall asleep. Be praying with me. And they fell asleep and things happened. The Bible says that Jesus was in such literal agony Literally, that drops of blood were coming from his brow, coming from his forehead. Um, as he knew what he was going to experience on the cross, such anguish came across him. It was, historians say it's one, if not the worst form of capital punishment in all of history. And the Roman soldiers, soon after he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, would beat Jesus senseless after whipping him 39 times, not 40 times, because that was a death blow. Um, it would be 39 times across his back, and were likely his internal organs were probably exposed. As the Roman historian Tactius talked about it, how great the people were with those whips and the cat of nine tails that would just have bone and glass and, other, and stone that would rip off layers of flesh. And he talked about how watching someone just do that in a very organized manner. They beat him again across the face. They mocked him. They spit on him. It was the creation abusing the creator. And they took a crown of the sharpest thorns, very similar to that, and didn't push on his back, but crushed it into his forehead. The soldiers then, as the blood uh, streamed down his face and he was all bruised, and Scripture tells us that you couldn't hardly even recognize him. That they took long, long stakes and they drove it through his wrist and through his ankles to suspend him in midair so he would have to pull up to breathe and push up on his feet and ankles to breathe. As man did his worst, God decided to do his best. When Jesus spoke these last words, he said, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. And then it comes to our scripture verse that we have here today from um, from, we have, I believe we have from uh, John here, and it says right here in John, later knowing that all was completed and that the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. I'm going to stop there real quick. Why does he say that? Well, in the Old Testament, there was a whole bunch of different prophecies that were going to be fulfilled, that were fulfilled in the life of Jesus. Many historians and many mathematicians have actually figured out that if one man that had all that fulfilled all the prophecies that Jesus did, it would be like marking, um, taking the whole state of Texas, putting a foot deep in silver dollars, marking one with a red X, mixing it all back up and laying it down to uh, one foot and reaching in and grabbing that one red, with a red X. That's the probability that one man like Jesus will fulfill all these prophecies. But at this point, there was one yet to be fulfilled. And it was one that, when, and Jesus fulfilled that here, whether it, knowing he had to fulfill it or whether God revealed it, what would happen to the prophets long ago. They would give him vinegar to drink. And Jesus said, I am thirsty. And then we continue with the scripture says, a jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put a sponge on the stalk of a hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. They gave him vinegar. 
You might like vinegar on your french fries, maybe with a little bit of salt, some of you. But like vinegar is not my favorite thing in the world. And when you have vinegar, what happens? Get a little bit thirsty, more thirsty. So to quench his thirst, they give him vinegar on the midst, uh, in the midst there. Other scriptures say that they, may, they gave him another thing that might have been a sedative that some may have had compassion on him. But verse 30 says something so intriguing after he said this. And it says, and after he received drink, Jesus said probably the three most amazing words that we could ever imagine. It is finished. It is finished. In other words, at that point, Jesus said, hey, Father, I'm done. I did it. That ultimate prophecy Jesus fulfilled and says to his daddy, hey, it's done. All that you sent me to do, I have done it. At this moment, it is finished and completed. And with that, he bowed up his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. It is finished. God saw that his son said, I have done everything that you have to do. The Greek term, the Greek word, tetelestai. Everybody say that with me. Tetelestai. Uh, it means it is finished. That's the word he would have said. And it's, it means to end or to complete or to execute or to discharge a debt. Jesus said, tetelestai. And he did it. He, could, he said, God, I did what you wanted me to do. That one little word has so such a rich meaning. And I didn't leave blanks for you in your bulletin, but if you, uh, if you would like to, and I know, uh, I think we do have a QR code. Melinda, you can pop that up there real quick if anybody wants to get the bulletin today. I think we have it right there. Go ahead and use your, your thing there while I'm giving, giving you these. Tetelestai has three different meanings. Take your smartphone and get it in there. Go ahead and lift it up. I don't mind. Um, lift your phones up to the Lord. That'll work. All right. Um, but one little word has such rich meaning. It means three different things. To a servant... A servant will return to his master. He comes back to his master and he says this, Master, Master, Tetelestai. Master, Tetelestai, meaning that everything that you've given me to do, I have completed all the tasks that you caused me to do, Master. And the master would say, well done, good and faithful servant. Or a merchant, when you bought something and a debt was there, he would say, once you paid that last part of your debt, how many have ever paid off a car? And we're like, yes. Anybody ever paid off a house? You're like, hallelujah, right? When you pay off something that you're making payments on, when you do it next time, go, tetelestai. Because what it means is this, the debt is paid in full. You owe nothing. <laughs> I remember when I got my school loans finally paid. Woo, tetelestai. The debt is cleared. <clears throat> it is totally and completely paid. And the third thing, Interestingly enough, because this is the season of Passover, was also something that the high priest said when he went to inspect the lamb. He would go and inspect it, and he looked to make sure it had no blemish, that it was absolutely perfect. And he would look over all of it, and he would say, if it was perfect, he would go, to tell us die, meaning this is perfect. This lamb has no blemish. It's perfect. Jesus did all three of those things at one point. Tetelestai as a servant of his father. Tetelestai as the merchant, the one who paid for your and my sins. And as the high priest and the Lamb of God, he said, Tetelestai, the Lamb of God, which John the Baptist said the first time he saw him, there's the Lamb of God that takes the sin of the world away. Well, what did he finish? Well, there's Old Testament prophecies, as I mentioned. Amos prophesied that darkness would cover the land, and it did. 
Isaiah said that Jesus would be one day rejected, and he was. The Psalms said he would be betrayed, and he was. Isaiah said he would be beaten, he would be spit upon, he would be wounded and bruised for our transgressions, and he was. Psalms said he would be mocked. Zechariah said he would be uh, forsaken by his friends, and he was. Isaiah said he would pray for his persecutors, and he did. Isaiah also said he would be crucified in between thieves, and he was. Psalms said that they would cast lots for his clothing, and they did. Psalms also says that none of his legs would be broken, which was uncommon for crucifixion, because they got tired of messing with you, and they'd just go ahead and take a mallet and break your legs. And guess what? His bones were not broken while he was on the cross for that. It also said he would cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And he did say that. It said he would be pierced, and he was. Psalm said they gave him vinegar to drink, and Jesus said, I'm thirsty, and they did. What else did he finish? He finished the fact that Satan's plan had been spoiled from the very beginning of the birth of Jesus. He tried to get Jesus one way or the other, tried to take him out before, tried to take him out after, tried to get him to follow him, and he wouldn't. Every time along the way, and the one power that Satan had was death. And so he thought, all right, yeah, let's kill him. Let's nail him to the cross. Let's go. Yeah. Until a little bit later, Jesus gave a knock on the door and said, you who give me the keys of hell and death because they're mine. He completed what God sent him to do. He paid our debt, not his. Sin lost its power because he is the perfect spotless lamb of God. And Jesus looked up to his father and said, it is finished. It is finished to tell us what you sent me to do. But there's good news, the best news, and there's bad news. The best news is this. The best news is Jesus finished the work. The bad news is this. Even though he finished it, you and I haven't. If you're alive today and you have breath in your body, you have unfinished business. There's more that God wants you to do and in and through you, there's more that God wants you to do. So in your bulletins, the first thing I want to share with you is you have un- we all have unfinished business. We have unfinished business. Let's look at this verse in Revelation. You say, wait a second, isn't this, aren't we supposed to be talking about like all the Gospels and the crucifixion? Yeah, look at this right here. Look what it says in Revelation 3. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being what? Alive. But you are? Oh, that fits perfect right in this time, doesn't it? What does he say? Wake up. Wake up. If somebody next to you is sleeping, go, wake up. All right, we can say that real loud. Wake up. Strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your deeds, what? Complete in the sight of my God. Look at that verse. I know your deeds. In other words, God is saying to a church, if you read Revelation, this is to a church, and he's saying to you, I know what you're doing. Some things are good, some things are okay. But listen, you have a reputation of being alive. You have a, you're a church that, that people say, oh my gosh, yes, they're alive. And he says, but really, I know what's going on. You're dead. So wake up and strengthen what is remaining that's about to die. And not, it's not complete. Think about that verse in the church context, in the church universal. 
I think over the last year, the church has had some of the biggest challenges, but also had some of the biggest opportunities to wake up from our slumber and to become alive again. And I think that God is actually kind of talking to us and saying, you know what, what, what I saw, well, you know what COVID did? COVID showed what those of you who are willing to strengthen what remained, and some of you are letting it die. And I think that's why you have statistics like four, four to five churches that close will never reopen again. Because maybe their deeds were not alive. Maybe the ones that are alive still and the church that is alive is on life support. And we're still here because God has some work for us to finish. We have unfinished business. I started thinking about my own kind of walk and journey with the Lord. It began at age five in Christ Church in Fredericksburg, and some of you heard that, Christ United Methodist Church at the altar where my father was the pastor. And it continued. And, and when I was a kid, I mean, you can ask Joe, when I was a kid, I just kind of like really was like passionate about Jesus stuff. Like I would be like, yeah, like I was a little kid and I was like, I can't wait to go to church. I can't wait. I, I preached little sermons and all kinds of stuff. I was like, like just really, really like, yes, Jesus was cool. And then I grew up and I still was like connected to it. And then I hit the teen years. And in the teen years, you kind of waver and you go back and forth. And you get caught into like everything else. But still, when we would have Youth Alive weekends and when we would have uh, revivals and, and those kind of things, I would still be like, boom, like, it was just like I connected in some way to this God stuff. And it just like, I, I felt like in the zone connected to God. So I went through college, Jack Cohen, the lost years. You don't have to look too far. You can find them. Um, but that was there. And then still, and through that process of struggling and coming back, I, I, I came back to a call that God had placed in my life. And I said, okay, I'm going to do this thing. And then I got a job and then lost the job and then went ahead and started a candidacy program in the United Methodist Church. And they, they gave me that call. Hey, Susan Kern-Kester was, um, was the superintendent. And one of the things I remember, uh, what, I remembered her name even more so because she sent a card uh, about how, how much she, was, she remembers dad being so proud of me and mom when, when I, I answered the call to ministry and became a pastor. And they appointed me to two little small country churches. And, you know, I was like shot out of a cannon in Fair Hill. I was like, yeah, we got this. And I was driving the, the older people in the church crazy because Jack was going to do whatever he needed to do. And, and it was just like, I remember one time I had clown communion. Those of you in the mass community know what that is, where you have a clown come in and do communion and they do mime. And I didn't tell anybody. They just knew it was communion Sunday. And usually people are dead on communion Sunday anyway. You know what I mean? A lot of people stay home on communion Sunday. So I stopped announcing when communion Sunday was. I, it's supposed to be the, the first Sunday month, right? Am I right? And it was whatever Sunday I felt like putting it so they wouldn't know. And somebody said, why, why are you always moving to communion? Around? Because if I, and I even said this. This is crazy. I even said this. I said, because if I told you, you wouldn't be here. And they're like, oh. Oh, okay. And so, I, and this clown comes down the aisle and people are like, ah, clowns? Uh, you know, I didn't even care what people were scared of clowns. I just was like, hey, we're going to do this. And it was powerful as this. And somebody said, please don't ever do that again. I, yeah, wasn't it awesome? And this is just 
where I was, and, and the church grew, and, and the two churches split, and one church went off on its own, and I went to the other church, and it grew from like 40 or 50 people into 100 people, and it was rolling along, and then we did the thing that the Methodist church does called musical chairs, and they moved me to Lewis, and that, you guys have heard that story a lot, but still in the midst of my struggle, God was doing something, and I was still like passionate, uh, had some passion, although I was, I was struggling because I was dealing with, with uh, church hierarchy and bureaucracy, and it was it did something in here to me, but then God put a call to start a church, so I started a church. But meanwhile, as I'm, I'm doing all that, and I'm, I'm feeling like, yeah, I was on fire to do this, then all of a sudden, still some of that stuff with that, that church uh, politics and doctrine that was there, because we started with another group, and that came back out, and it started to do something to me, and started to work in me. And then even though we were having great worship, and we're having great things happen, and we're doing ministries in Haiti, something was happening to me in my own life. And that, that young pastor was so fired up and, and would freak people out to just do something for Jesus. Started to have this moment where life began to set in. And rejection set in. And hurt set in from tons of people all over that you love. And then laziness sets in. Lazy, you say laziness? Laziness begins to set in with my time with God. My intimacy with him starts to be pushed to the side. And those things that, that kept me on fire started to start and became secondary or just things on the fringe of life. And when you don't give time to relationships, what happens? They die. See, you can, you have a, you have a reputation for being alive. Because Jill and I have been on stage since I was, I was, what, three? And she was seven? Or you were, you were three or four, too. Mom, you were there before me, right? So we're used to that environment. We were told to suck it up, make the show go on. You have a reputation for being alive. But meanwhile, you're dead. How many of us live that way every day? How many of us live that we're, we're, we're putting on the good game face every day? That this thing is, is awesome. That we're like this church. And some of us may even get to the point of God, man, and even me too in my points of extreme depression, God, why don't you just make me dead and get it over with so I don't have to put it on anymore. Anybody with me? I had become the personification of this passage. I had a reputation for being alive. But so much within me was dead or dying. But guess what? What I realized as I, I've gone through these ups and downs, even within this last year, I mean, everybody knows the challenges of, of losing two parents at all, but losing them in four months, as big as they were in our lives, is huge. Dealing with your own kind of, we, we, remember our series we did on, on mental health? And dealing with my own struggles with ADHD and, and the, everything that comes along with that. That's been mixed in here. Dealing with some other challenges and other things. All those things are here. And yet, recognizing that I still have an unfinished business. And that unfinished business is simply this way. To each and every day figure out how I'm going to live the rest of that day and the rest of my life in such a way that the outward passion that I have for Christ is equal to the inner peace of Christ within do you get that? That's my unfinished business. 
So may I ask you a question? What is yours? Yours may be similar to mine, but I'm going I'm to dare tell you that I believe that there is something else for you. And in your bulletin, and if you didn't get the bulletin, pull out your little notes thing on your, um, on your uh, smartphone, all right? And, or whatever you need to do. And I want you to write, my unfinished business is, and fill it in. Fill it in. Write down the first thing that comes to your mind. It may or, not, or may not be an area of hypocrisy you're going to need to work on. It may be something that God has burdened you for or created you for to do um, that may be seen in and through you that you haven't seen through yet. It may be God calling you to adopt or be a foster parent. Oh, Jesus, please don't do that to me. All right? That may be, that may be your call. It certainly ain't mine because uh, inner peace would go out the window right away. I'm telling you that. But that may be yours. Your unfinished business may be to forgive someone or yourself for the first time in life. Maybe your unfinished business is to get out of debt. Maybe your unfinished business is to stop filling the voids in your life with something else and, or someone else. Maybe your unfinished business is to share the love of Christ with someone that you love who is far from him. So in the next few moments, just let God speak to your heart in light of what you just wrote down. Did you hear what I just said there? In light of what you just did what? Wrote down. Write it down. First thing popped in your head. Write it down. Why? Why? Because Jesus finished well. Every single day that God blesses us with another opportunity is an opportunity to live, is an opportunity to take one step closer to the purpose that he's given you. Finish well like Jesus. And here's an honesty moment here. You ready for honesty moment? Honesty moment is we live in a culture where many people start stuff and stop it. Many people start so many things. I remember I used to ask people, did you make a New Year's resolution? People raise their hand. Now people don't even bother. They say, I'm going to try to do this because they're defeated. So question is, how do we like Christ finish well when so little of us in culture finish anything? I'm going to give you a couple of brief thoughts tonight and roll on in the service. And I want you to just kind of jot these down. First thing is how we're going to finish strong. We, are, we need to make a commitment. Everybody say make a commitment. And you may say right here, well, you know, Jack, I, I've done that. I've made a commitment. Have you? I think we have a skewed view of commitment and what it really looks like. The Apostle Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 8, 11. Look at this. He says, now do what? Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do so may be matched by your what? Completion of it according to your means. What that means here, in our culture, we are defined, we define commitment by eager willingness. You say, what are you talking about? For instance, I'm going to work out and lose weight. See, Siri even says so. See, we're good. Yeah, right there. Siri was like, yeah, we're going for it, all right? Siri probably said, yep, that's what you said, okay? But we do that. We say, yes, I'm going to work out. I'm going to get healthy. I'm going to do this. We go to the gym that one day. We're like, "Hmm, forget that. Or a couple days or a week, and then we get, feel like it. I'm going to eat better. I'm going to go ahead. I'm going to lose weight. But, and we have that eager willingness. I'm not denying that you have a willingness to do that. I'm not denying that I have it myself. But there's a problem. The double-stuffed Oreos are still in the cabinet. And whether you like it or not, you find yourself in there. 
He said, ah, just today. And we, and we do that. That eager willingness is here. It isn't a commitment until you change and complete your eager willingness. Notice he says, finish the work so that you're eager, what you're eager to do is matched by the completion of it. There's a great story about this man who I'm going to put up here. And you guys have probably heard it before. But it's a man named Hernando Cortez. And Hernando Cortez, in the spring of 1519, he received permission from the governor of Spain to take 11 ships and 700 men to discover a new world. They sailed with eager willingness to expand the territory of Spain and increase the treasures they would find in the new land. When they landed in Veracruz, their eager willingness waned really quickly because what they discovered is that they were the most savage, violent natives that they hadn't prepared for. You see, their eager willingness was treasures and more land for Spain, but they hadn't thought that people there were saying, "Uh uh-uh, and they were willing to fight for it. All of a sudden, that eager willingness began to wane, and the crew said, I don't know. And they began to say, I, I want to go home. I, 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 don't, I want some real food, and I don't like somebody chasing me to cut my head off. I want to go home. And this grumbling began to go and go, and their eager, eager willingness that they sought out on this long journey had gone by the wayside. When Cortez heard of what was going on, he gave the order to one of his crew, and it was simply this. Burn the ships. Burn the ships. Guess what happens when you burn the ships? You ain't going home. He burned every single one of those ships. 700 men now had to make a commitment to head forward. What in your life do you need to burn behind you? What is it that you need to burn so you don't go back to the same patterns, to the same things that you do in your life that gets you and me to where we are here today? Holding on to a reputation of being alive but really dying inside. Commitment is taking your passionate desire to do something and drawing a line in the sand and burning the ships behind you and stepping across that line saying, there is no turning back. That's how we finish strong. And when we commit like it's exactly what we see in our Savior, Jesus, that is commitment. We say, we don't stop until we can say, Father, it is finished to tell us that. Jesus, in the Garden of Gethsemane, was battling over what he knew would happen. With the agony so much, he was bleeding droplets of blood with sweat. And you hear it, and I hear it, and we feel it in his words when he says this, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. In other words, he's saying, Father, please, is there something else that could be done here? He, he was much like the people who were Cortez. I don't want to go through this. I'm not feeling this. This is going to be the worst thing ever. Why now? Can't we wait? Can't we do something else? And then he stepped across the line and said, but not my will. Yours be done. And once he stepped across that line, he knew where he was headed. He wasn't headed to savages on an island. He wasn't looking at burning ships. What he was looking at was the cross. If you're going to finish strong, you need to start with commitment and make it a commitment not to go back. Number two, we need to take the next step. Take the next step. We're going to take a next step. And you know what we take after the next step? The next step. And the next step. And the next step. I always think of that 
that uh, Santa Claus is coming to town. Take, put one foot in front of the other, right, when he's teaching him how to walk. I always think of that. That's how we need to do. Why? Why do we take the next step? Because the chasm, that gap between where we live today and our present reality is so overwhelming to where God wants us to be. That's why most people don't finish. They look at this huge chasm of what they feel God wants, where God wants them to be, and they're all the way over here, and they say, there's no way I can get there. I can't do it. Yes, you can. One step at a time. One step after another step after another step. Look at what it says here in Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light into my path. Let me share it with you what that means. That means that God does not put on the fog lights to go ahead and light up your whole journey. It just says your lamp is a light into my feet and a light for my path. You know how much you see? About this much, the next step, and the next step, and the next step. And you know what? You don't see the next step until you start to move to take the next step. That's what God's word does. It gives us the next step. God's word comes alive at the chasm because he doesn't give us enough revelation to go the whole way. We can't see that far, but we can take enough to take that first step. As I was sharing, with several of the things that in dealing with about me and, and in the struggles I have and, in, um, and realizing that, as a friend of mine told me, Jack, you're not okay, and that's okay. Somebody, somebody needs to hear that tonight. I'm going to say that again. You are not okay. You don't have everything together. You aren't super Christian. You're broken. You're messed up. Congratulations for coming to church tonight. You're sinful. You're arrogant. You're trampled on by people. You're taken advantage of. You're, as you may even be, a nasty person. And you're not okay. But that's okay. Because he came to pay the price for all that. And so uh, one of the things I've learned about, you know, with dealing with my own struggles and my own nature and, and recognizing that, that I spent almost 50 years wondering why I relate to things and why I do things like this and why, why I, I literally, when, when relationships break down, that, that I actually get sick in my stomach and, and I feel like a failure at times. And, when I, and I deal with that, um, you know, that I'm always going to be alone and I'm always going to do this. I can, be the most, I can be the most alone person in a full room. And that's what I live with every day. And when I look at that and when I'm unpacking that and trying to struggle with why do I do that? And then realizing, whoa, there is some reasons why I do that. And then dealing with the fact, well, I'm not supposed to be broken. And God says, yeah, 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 you are. And it's okay. Because the first step in confession is, is to get honest. To get honest that you're not okay. The next step that we take, so we take that first step. Okay, I'm going to get honest with myself and who I am and what I struggle with and what I deal. That's step one. And then the next one is accountability. Okay, if I'm like that, I need some people in my life that I can lean on and I can trust and, and just recognize that they're going to be there, that they're going to ask me the questions that I don't want to answer in life. Anybody like questions? I love to ask questions. Anybody knows me? I love asking questions. I have asked questions since I've been a little kid. I will ask questions till the day I die, and I ask questions, questions, questions. I do it. It's just who I am. And so some of them is because I want to know, others because I want you to know. And 
And so when I ask questions, a lot of times maybe you just need those people in your life who ask you the questions that you don't want to hear. Because through the questions that people have asked me in my life, Jack, why are you, boom? And I say, eh, no, don't go there. Once you get to don't go there, definitely go there. Because once you go there, you're going to take that next step. And you can have all you want. You can get honest with you all you want. But if you don't have the right people in your life to ask you the questions and be accountable, you will never take another step and you will stay there. And then the next step you will take is backwards and you'll start lying to yourself again. I do it all the time. But if you get that accountability, then you can take the next step. And once you get that accountability, you ask the questions. And then the questions point out that the areas that are dead or dying in my life, then I can go ahead and I can say, okay, God. Now it's time for you to breathe life into there and rebuild, revive, and restore those areas that I need step by step by step. So what's your next step? That's the question I'm asking you now. What's your next step? Remember you just wrote down um, what your unfinished business is? What's your next step? It may be to get honest with you. It may be to take an evaluation of everybody who's around you and wonder who's good for you and who's not. It may be to say, you know what, but, but some of these people I've been with for 15, 20, 30 years. Maybe that's why you haven't taken another step in your life. Your next step, literally, go ahead and write that down. Maybe it's to write a letter. If it is, write it down. Maybe it's to cut up your credit cards. If so, write it down. Maybe it's to make that phone call. Write it down. Maybe it's to fill out that resume. Maybe your next step is to forgive. Maybe your next step is to love unconditionally and just say, I'm going forward with it. Maybe your next step is to finally say, all right, God, I give up. I'm going to accept you as my Savior. Put up or shut up and let him do what he needs to do in your life and accept him as your Lord for the very first time. Or maybe you accept him as your Lord, as your, as your Savior, but you haven't made him Lord of your life, and that's the time to make that step now. If we are going to finish strong, We're going to have to commit with great resolve, and then we're going to have to take the next step. You know, it's overwhelming to think about Jesus, what he did from the Garden of Gethsemane to the cross. Jesus was crucified on a hill called Golgotha, which meant the place of the skull. I often imagine what that journey up that hill looked like. He was beaten within an inch of his life, barely recognizable even as a human being. Then in the place that he got to, he took that step, that one step to carry yours and my Uh, sin upon the cross in his agony with the crown of thorns being crammed into his brow and going through his skin he took the step with the hope that you would say yes to a relationship with him and become a child of God then he picked up the beam and as he would be hung on and placed it on his beaten raw shoulders and he took a step with hopes that those who are under the suffocating weight of bondage in life that are struggling with all the isms and all the things in their life that is so weighty on them, the own pressure that they put on, he thought that just maybe if he took that on himself that you would be set free. And then he clawed his way up to the place where the nails, the size of railroad spikes, pierced his wrist. And he took another step and said, I love you. I love you. I love you. And then he looked to his father and said, to Telestai, it is finished. We have unfinished business. Each one of you and everybody in the sound of my voice. 
And we should be encouraged by Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, which says this. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to what? Completion until the day of Christ Jesus. If you have breath, Jesus hasn't called you home. And unless he returns tonight, we still have unfinished business to do. One of my favorite stories that I've always shared, um, particularly on Christmas weekends, is a story about a man named John Stephen Akawari. And you're going to see a video of him back here. In 1968, in the Mexico City Olympics, John Stephen Akawari, I think you're going to do. Go ahead, Melinda, you can show it. Um, from Tanzania, set out for hopes of Olympic gold in the 26.2-mile marathon race. Sadly for him, and this is actually him, Midway through the race, he had a horrible accident, falling to the ground, gashing his knee open, and dislocating his knee from the joint, keeping him from finishing the race. While all the other racers behind him had left him behind, and they had finished, the winners had actually completed the race an hour before. But over an hour after the race had been won, and all the other runners had completed, John Stephen Akawari, as you can see, him limping, along, ran and ran and ran and began to hobble into a mostly empty stadium with a very injured runner, took every ounce and grimace in each step that he had as he walked into this and made it with every ounce of strength that he had in this mostly empty stadium. He began hobbling, limping, and fighting his way to the finish line. His leg wrapped with a little towel, with blood gushing down. This very brave hero finished to rage firstly. Everyone would have quit. After the race, interviewers went ahead. And you see the people that were there, they were going ahead and they were cheering him on. Mostly empty stadium. And as he grimaced to that last part, he nearly collapsed. At the end of everything, the interviewer said to him, John, what in the world were you doing? Why did you, why did you go through all the pain and struggles and everything when there, you had no chance of even beginning to win? And Akawari answered this, my country did not send me 5,000 miles away to start a race but they sent me 5,000 miles away to finish it. It's the same thing with you. God did not send you to earth to start a race. He sent you to finish it. Amen. Commit to it. Yeah, you're going to take your, your bumps and, your, and, your, and your, it's going to be grimacing and you're going to be bloody and you're going to have all these things. But how do you do it when we get to the place when you know that our life is not about us, but it's about what the Apostle Paul said in Acts 20, 24. He said, however, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may do what? Finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Finish your race. Finish your race. God is not done with you yet. You still have a race to run. Keep in step with the Spirit. Stay close to the Spirit. Follow His voice. Commit and take the next step so that one day you can stand before God and you can go into Christ in heaven and you can go ahead and walk in there and say, Tetelestai, it is finished. And He will look at you and say, Well done, good and faithful servant.
Amen. Let's continue and worship the Lord. Today, Debbie is going to read for us another verse from Mark chapter 15. The praise team is going to play, and then we're going to have our communion and cross nailing. Soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you're going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the laws mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Savior, 
Part and in there you have the wafer that is there, all right. And you can peel that off. That's your wafer. A lot of people thought it was just a, a top, all right. Don't you miss bread? Don't you miss standing in line to come up? Man, we'll get there. God willing, a creek don't rise, right? All right. So you peel that off, and then right underneath that, the red part is. You, I mean, you can pull the right, oh, full thing off of the juice. But the first thing is, when um, we recognize that the night before this night, that Jesus took the wafer, took the bread. It would have been unleavened bread. He took it, he gave thanks to his father, and he said, take and eat from this, all of you. This is my body, which is given for you. And he broke it, which would have been called the Africa men in the Seder meal. And he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples and said, eat this. 
And as he did, they ate it. So this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The Seder meal had lots of different cups. After the supper was over, we know, we, most scholars believe it was the cup of redemption. And after the supper was over, he once again, he, gave, he took the cup, he gave thanks to God, which would have been in the Seder meal, um, the Seder meal practice where he said, blessed are you, Lord God, creator, ruler, sovereign of the universe that gives us fruit of the vine that we have drink. And he took it and he gave it to his disciples once again. But once again, he changed it. And he said, this is my blood poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. And so Lord, in remembrance of these, your mighty acts in Jesus Christ, we offer ourselves as a holy and living sacrifice in union with Christ's offering for us as we proclaim the mystery of faith that Christ has died, Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here that we may be the body of Christ for the world that so needs it. Isn't it awesome that even though it's a wafer and a little shot glass, plastic shot glass, that COVID doesn't stop, Jesus. So what we're going to do right now is, I know there's some people who are going to come up. The palms that you brought in, because we remember Palm Sunday. If you missed that sermon, go back. We talked about the miracle of the donkey. The people that were just a few days praise him. Woo, yeah. Were the same ones, some of the many that were saying, crucify him. And so those live palms that we had just the other day are starting to dry out. You see, those palms had a reputation for what? Being alive. But they're mostly dead. What a symbol as we nail those to the cross that those things that just a few days earlier were living and alive are dying. And we need Christ to strengthen what remains and we do that by nailing all those things to the cross. So as we move we have people who are going to be nailing them on for you. I ask that you listen and you think about Jesus and how he took that on for the hope that you would open up your life to him on his cross. your love that you would stretch your arms and go around the world and why for me would a savior's cry be heard I don't know why you went where I was meant to go I don't know why you love me so those were my nails that was my crown Took my shame. 
how deep is your grace that you could see my need and choose to take my place and then for me these words I hear you say Father no forgive them for they know not what they do I will go because I love them so those were my nails that was my crown that pierced your hands and your brow those were my thorns those were my scones those were my tears that fell down just as you said it would be you did it all for me and after you counted the cause you took my strength my blame on my cross how wide is your love how wide is your love that you would stretch your arms and go around the world? And why for me would a Savior's cry be heard? I don't know why you went where I was meant to go. I don't know why you love me so. Those were my nails, that was my crown, that pierced your hands and your brow. Those were my thorns, those were my scones, those were my tears that fell down. And just as you said it would be you did it all for me and after you counted the cause you took my shame my grave those were my nails that was my ground that pierced your hands and your brow Those were my scores, those were my tears that fell down. Just as you said it would be, you did it all for me. And after you counted the cause, you took my shame, my the cost you took my shame my blame on my
15, verses 33 through 39. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, Listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who had stood there in front of Jesus, saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the Son of God.
Tremble, tremble. 